0: Do you trust the media's reporting on the war in Israel? One critic's questionable claim got a number of journalists in Gaza in hot water and in real danger. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson and the Night Light is on. Tonight on the show, I've got a bone to pick with a group that's upset over mainstream coverage of Israel. They basically accused some photographers covering Gaza of being complicit with Hamas. That led two Israeli politicians to say those journalists should meet the same fate as the terrorists. What does it really take to cover a war? I'll explain ahead. First, my thoughts on Senator Joe Manchin. He's not running for re-election, raising new problems for Democrats. It could reshape his party's election strategy, which I suspect is just the way he likes it. Today's episode comes from this week's live stream. Watch live or anytime on Twitch, YouTube, or Facebook. I'm still on social media at joshualistening, and you can email me joshua at nightlightshow.com. Let's dive in with the latest from Washington and the latest jumping up and down about Senator Joe Manchin. We mentioned this yesterday on the program that the senator posted on his Twitter yesterday that he is leaving the U.S. Senate. He has been in public office for a very long time. He was a state lawmaker. He was the secretary of state in the state of Nevada. And now he was also the governor of the state of Nevada. And now he is a senator there posted his remarks here. There's one piece of those remarks that I think is worth hearing. And I'll play that for you in just a second. But there's been a lot of talk about what this is going to mean. There's some speculation that he might try to run for president, that that is the reason why he is leaving the Senate. I don't know if I fully believe that, but at least that's the speculation. And he says that he's just going to talk to people across the country about political division now and and, and getting past our political divisions. Now, if you know anything about me, you know I'm a very pragmatic person. I like connecting to all kinds of people from every walk of life. I do not like bickering. I don't mind political arguing, right? you're, You're entitled to believe what you believe about your politics. But I don't like to see people just kind of harping on one another in ways that are not actually productive. So the idea... Of talking to the American people about their divisions makes sense to me. However, there's a few things that I think you should know in terms of the context for this and some of the speculation. For those of you who don't know me well, I was the founding host of a show on 1A on, on NPR called 1A, which was a talk show, a daily national talk show, two hours a day, based in Washington. So I lived in Washington for three years. I got hired. About a week and a half after Donald Trump won the election. So, my entire time in Washington was spent during the Trump administration. And I got to see DC in a very intense time in its history when even longtime pundits and longtime commentators were very clear that they had no idea where things were going. I remember one of the very first people that reached out to me after the show launched was Cokie Roberts, God rest her, who was a longtime political commentator for NPR and for ABC News. Cokie Roberts took me out to coffee early in my time on 1A. She was so gracious, so sweet, just lovely, exactly the person that we remembered from television. And she asked me, like, how are you settling in? I was like, I'm still trying to find up from down. And she's like, we all are. I've been here for a very long time. I don't know what's going to happen. So I say that partly because if you are looking at today's politics and you feel like which way are things going, nobody knows, nobody knows. If you feel confused about what's happening, that is normal. The people you see on TV are doing their best to give you their analysis and their punditry and their prognostication and whatever, no one really knows, we are in uncharted waters. In a way that's great because it means that you and I have an opportunity to influence, to make an impact, on the world in which we live like never before because the rules are kind of being thrown out. But let it give you a little bit of comfort that if it seems insane, you're not the crazy one. Everyone is like, what is gonna happen? That's normal, that is actually quite normal. With regard to Joe Manchin, let me show you a few things that I think are worth looking at. The president thing I think is dumb and I'll tell you why in a minute. First of all, I know that he infuriates a lot of people, right? On both sides of the aisle. He is often very cagey. He keeps his views very close to the chest. He does not negotiate in public, as they say, which I always found annoying when politicians would say that like, you work for public. Why why won't you talk to public? Public won't know what you're thinking because public is paying your pension. You got a public pension paid by public. So John Q. Public needs some answers. That always annoyed me. But that's one of the things that was always his stock in trade and also gave him a lot of political power. In negotiations, people really had to go to him and talk to him very specifically. Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona is very similar in that way, in that she is a moderate Democrat, or was a moderate Democrat. She is now an independent. She left the party after she got the party's support to become a senator. We'll get to that in a second. But they have been these kind of wild cards. Now, currently, the independents in the Senate caucus with democrats. Bernie Sanders from Vermont, Angus King from Maine, and Kirsten Cinema from Arizona, all three of them caucus with democrats generally. Kirsten Cinema has said she's not going to do that as a rule, she doesn't know which way that she's going to go necessarily, so again, she has been dealing in mystery and it has served her pretty well. Let me show you a map that I think is going to clarify something about the future. In 2024. And this is now a very important reason to watch the Senate. We were already planning to watch the Senate closely, no matter what. This changes things even more. This is a map from a group called Split Ticket. One of the metrics that Split Ticket does is what they call wins above replacement. Wins above replacement, for those of you who know baseball, is a sabermetrics term. If you've ever if you ever saw the movie or read the book Moneyball, sabermetrics is that statistical model that Moneyball is about. Wins above replacement basically is a way of measuring how many games a baseball team would have won with a particular player in their roster, as opposed to just a typical player who was coming out of the league at that time. So, how much better off am I with you as opposed? to somebody else who I could have gotten. This, what you're looking at now, is split tickets map from the 2018 Senate races, the last time that Joe Manchin won re-election. The terms are six years, so that was his last race. And they measured the wins above replacement as they see it based on the caliber of candidates from either party, the typical Republican candidate, the typical Democratic candidate, how they performed and how they would have performed based on the actual candidate who ran specifically. Number one among Republicans is right over here in the state of Washington. That nine percentage point wins above replacement bump, that is for Republican Senator Susan Hutchinson. Who's got the highest Democratic score on that map? The deepest blue. Right. It's Joe Manchin in West Virginia. And it's not even close. 31 percentage points above the typical Democrat running at that time. It's not even close. Now, what does that mean? Now, next closest, you got right here, is Alabama, 16 points. That would be, I'll show it to you here on the scale, Roy Moore, Doug Jones running against Roy Moore in Alabama. Now, what does this tell us? This tells us that there's a real concern among Democrats, understandably, about the party's ability to hold seats in states that tend to lean more Republican or more purple. So you've got, for example, in Alabama, that's 16 points, that's Doug Jones in Alabama. That 11 points in Montana, that's John Tester in Montana. So you've got these more moderate Democrats who tend to do better than the typical Democrat would have done in those states. That's why you see states like, say, New York, which are very light blue. It's a very democratic state, so a typical Democrat would have probably done just fine in the Senate race. It's those deeper blue states that are more important to Democrats generally because those are races that Democrats can easily lose. But because they had Democrats who were moderate enough to appeal, they were able to win those races. Does that make sense? Let's continue. And I'll show you a little bit more. There's a, uh, a lot of people who do punditry punditry in Washington. One of the ones that I trust the most is the Cook Political Report. Amy Walter is the head of Cook Political Report now. They are nonpartisan. They are, they, you have to pay for full access. So I pay a couple hundred bucks a year to get full access, which is in the context of what I do. I mean, Bloomberg costs a few hundred dollars a year. And Bloomberg, I think, is worth it, too. But Cook Political Report does predictions and projections about which ways races are leaning. Is it a solid Democratic-leaning race in terms of who might win, Republican? Is it likely leaning or a toss-up? Cook Political Report says, and I will show you this latest remark from them, that now that Joe Manchin is out, West Virginia is solid Republican. That's their prediction. Here's what Cook Political Report said about the nature of the race now. Quote, Ultimately, Manchin may have already been a dead man walking, but his exit makes it official. Putting West Virginia in the Republican column, Democrats can't afford to lose a single more state on the map, and that is only if they keep the White House. Ohio and Montana are next most logical pickups. I'll show you more about that in a minute. Along with Arizona, where Manchin's fellow centrist Senator Kirsten Sinema has yet to make her own re-election plans official after becoming an independent late last year. Not having her frequent ally running again might influence her decision, considering a brutal three-way race is looming, if she does run. Goes on to say, quote, There are four other states we rate as lean Democrats. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and an open seat in Michigan that all overlap with competitive presidential battlegrounds as well. Democrats can't sugarcoat the mansion news, but argue this isn't a fatal blow to their chances, unquote. And then they have a statement from one of the top officials with Democratic Senate campaigning. Here's the thing I want you to see from Cook. And this is what I think is most useful and most interesting from this survey. Here's their chart of the races in terms of how they see them leaning right now. This is their rating summary. This is something that's, that's if you subscribe to Cook, and I'm not saying you should or shouldn't, but if you do, this is the kind of thing that people get. So it's the overall look, and here's what they mean by these ratings. So solid, not considered competitive, likely, also not considered competitive, but could maybe get spicy, Lean, competitive, toss-up, competitive, and it and it could go either way. Right now, 23 of the seats the Democrats hold are up for re-election this November, this coming November. Solid seats. Easily California, obviously. They've got an open Senate seat because of the death of Senator F- Diane Feinstein. Connecticut. Chris Murphy, Delaware's got an open seat. Maisie Hirono in Hawaii, Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts, Maryland's got an open seat. Angus King, who I said, an independent who caucuses with with Democrats, he's running for re-election. Amy Klobuchar, and on and on and on. These seats look very, very, very safe. Come to New Jersey, Bob Menendez. He is facing prosecution potentially on charges, on accusations, of acting as a foreign, foreign agent. But even that seat is considered to be likely held by a Democrat, even if something happens to him, the party will likely hold on to it. These lean Democratic states, some of these just came up. Michigan's got an open Senate seat. John Tester in Montana. Jackie Rosen here in Nevada. Bob Casey Jr. in Pennsylvania. Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin. A number of these are presidential battlegrounds. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Nevada is an early primary state. The GOP caucuses in January, the Democratic primaries in February. We mentioned Kirsten Cinema toss-up. Sherrod Brown in Ohio is also considered a toss-up. And now that Joe Manchin is out, solid Republican. That's the prediction from Cook Political. Look at the Republican seats that are up for re-election and the balance of where they sit on the scale. Eleven Republican seats are up for re-election. None of them is considered anything less than likely to be re-elected. None. All those seats are considered solid Republican seats. The only two that are considered at all competitive are Senator Scott, Rick Scott in Florida, and Ted Cruz in Texas. Ted Cruz faces a potential uh, challenge from a Democratic congressman in Texas who might actually give him something of a run for his money. When Ted Cruz won re-election last time, he won it basically by a point. He won with 50.9%. So he is not considered in a strong position. Rick Scott was the governor of Florida, not the strongest of Republicans, though he's also been a high-ranking figure in Republican fundraising. So the party might rally to his aid, put a lot of money behind his campaign and so on. Everything else is considered a very safe seat. So there are no Republican seats up for re-election this year, that at least according to Cook, are anything other than a lock. They're not even competitive. Now, the Democrats have one seat that is not even a chance, at least according to what the good money looks like in terms of the future of that seat. So Democrats have yet another reason to say, thanks, Joe, based on all that's gone on in the last few years. This is not good for Democrats, but they do have some races, where they may be able to make up some ground, but in terms of gaining ground over Republicans, mm, I, I don't see it. I just do not see it. The other thing that's come up, and I don't know how you feel about this, you let me know, but I, I think, you know, it's it's it, it's kind of remarkable to me that it's been this dramatically. I, I mean, Joe Manchin has been a really weird presence in his party in the last few years. Partly because it's been so hard for Democrats to kind of wrangle him. If I was him, I might be doing the exact same thing that he's doing because that gives him some political power. Why would you want to give that away in terms of having influence? Having said that, I also see where he's going in terms of his point of view on government. Joe Manchin is a complicated character. He comes from a coal-producing state. He has been an opponent or at least a res- resistor. He's been an impediment to some climate change policy because of the economic impact it could have on coal miners in West Virginia, which, let's be clear, coal miners in West Virginia need a pathway out of coal mining for ecological and health reasons, but also because coal mining is a really lucrative career. You can make like $80,000 a year as a coal miner. In West Virginia, you can make a lot of money coal mining. It's very dangerous work, but it's also work you can feed your family on. So it's, I can understand why someone would not want to give that up. I can understand why someone will be very proud of that work in a region like Appalachia, where there's so much less interest. Like, you know, you don't see, you know, movie studios saying, we're going to build a new location in West Virginia. They could, dirt cheap, but you don't see that happening. Right? They're, moving, they're trying to come here. Sony Pictures is trying to build a new lot in Las Vegas, like a new movie studio, an honest-to-God studio here in Las Vegas. They could do it in West Virginia too, but there's just not that much interest. So coal mining, of course people support the coal mining industry because it's the only industry that's stuck around. And even those coal mines are running out because they've been strip mining the earth. But it's understandable why people feel away about that business. I'm not defending it, but I do understand it. But here's the other piece of that. Here is part of what Joe Manchin said in his Twitter video. Every incentive in Washington is designed to make our politics extreme. The growing divide between Democrats and Republicans is paralyzing Congress and worsening our nation's problems. The majority of Americans are just plain worn out. Our economy is not working for many Americans from the rising cost of food and fuel and everything in between. We have a border crisis with illegal drugs entering our country and killing Americans every day. Our national debt is out of control and Americans don't feel safe, even in their own communities. We are providing critical aid to two of our allies, fighting wars for their survival. And we must prevent being pulled into a major war ourselves. These are not Republican or Democratic challenges. These are American challenges. They affect every one of us and we need to face them together. So that's something I think that might augur well for him if he decided to run for a larger office, because you know what? That's one of the things that he's been able to kind of make work for him. This very real discontent with what we're seeing in Washington. Like, yeah, there's a lot of issues that, you know, he he's right that there's a whole lot of discontent with the way that Washington works. One of the other things I learned when I worked in Washington, and is. As much as I do not want to go back to Washington, D.C. professionally, I am grateful that I got a chance to be there because of what it taught me about the country, not only from traveling and covering the country, but from being in D.C. so much. The polarization in Washington. Is a very mixed bag for people who work inside the Beltway. I flashback to my first time being on Meet the Press. I think nothing opened my eyes to the truth behind Washington, D.C. than being on Meet the Press for the very first time. I was very nervous going in and sitting in between people from the political left and the political right and me being a real political outsider with no partisan affiliation made me feel like I had to get ready for the boxing gloves to come out because that's what we're used to kind of perceiving on television. Before the show, everyone was in the green room. They're chatting very amicably. We move out to the set a few minutes before air. We start talking about movies and baseball and, you know, Chuck Todd, who was the moderator at the time, was just kind of holding court. And it was, it was lovely. It was very, very nice until I heard, and then I could hear myself pucker. I was like, oh, God, this is it. And then we did the show. But between the breaks, everything was copacetic. And when the show was over and I finally unpuckered because I was so nervous, I realized how much I enjoyed it. And that's when it clicked for me. The division in Washington is not for Washington. It's for us. It's for the partisans and the politicos among us who are demanding something from the performance art that is American politics. But I went to a number of parties, receptions, dinners, and events in Washington where all the ranks dropped. It's an industry town. You can't survive in a city like Washington if you're constantly at other people's throats. No one would want to work with you anywhere. When people lament, oh, senators and members of Congress used to work together all the time and they don't work together anymore and their kids went to the same schools and now they spend all this time in their districts and they're not in Washington anymore. Yes. That is an actual problem. I know that sounds crazy, but it's a real problem. People in Washington today are still very able to drop ranks and just enjoy the evening. I have been at events with TV news anchors and pundits and senators and members of Congress and Supreme Court justices that were just as chill as any other professional mixer you would attend in any other city. Washington is an industry town. What you perceive of Washington politics is the image that reflects back to you what they believe you will accept for the sake of your vote and your donations and your support and your attention. That is why Washington looks to you the way it looks. But from working there, I can tell you these people have known each other for a really long time. The ones who've been there for a long time are there because they're decent people to work with. No one wants to work with a jerk. So on top of Joe Manchin saying that Washington rewards polarization, the worst part of it is that the industry itself is not as polarized as it presents itself to be. It's this weird, false image. I remember being in the business and going, God, I wish people could watch What happens before Meet the Press airs and after? That's the part of the show I really want to see. That's what I want you to see. I want you to see how collegial Washingtonians are to one another compared to the act they have to put on for us. That is the biggest problem with our political polarization, is that it's performance art. It may come from real ideological places, But the consensus and the relationships are not depicted, and that's a real shame. So I'm here to tell you, don't buy it. When you see it, even if they're saying something they truly believe, do not buy this notion that all the Democrats hang out over here and all the Republicans hang out over there and they are just jet sharks all day long. That is not true. That is not the way Washington works. And it's about time that Washington owned up to that for our sake so that we could catch our breath. One other thing I would wanna note, there's been some talk about whether or not Joe Manchin might run for the president of the United States. As I said, because of his centrism, I guess that's possible, but here's something I want you to consider if that begins to gain legs. What is one of the main critiques of Joe Biden right now for running for president again? What's one of the big critiques? One of it has to do with his economic policy. People don't necessarily feel that they are economically better off because of Joe, because of Bidenomics, as he puts it. That's a mixed bag. We can argue that for and against, but that's at least what voters are telling us. But what's one of the biggest critiques against Joe Biden running again? Just on the face of it. He's old. It's his age. He's an octogenarian. He'd be one of the oldest presidents who ever lived, if not the oldest president who ever lived. Do you know how old Joe Manchin is? Do you know how old Donald Trump is? Biden is 80s. Donald Trump is 77. Joe Manchin is 76. Who's he going to appeal to? Where's that appeal? Now, if you're in your 70s, you're entitled to vote. It doesn't mean you shouldn't like people who are of that age. But like, they're all the same age. (laughs) They're all on the exact same thread of the AARP call list. Like, they're all in the same bracket. And the electorate these days is more diverse than ever. It is getting younger. And I think as a result of the war in Israel, young people will be at the polls this year. They are not going to be silent in 2024 at all. Do you really think that's the candidate who's going to unseat Joe Biden and or Donald Trump? Is another septuagenarian? Eh, maybe? But if the critique of Joe Biden is to be believed, I don't see how Joe Manchin is a better analog for Joe Biden just because he's like four years younger, five years younger. Is that enough? You tell me. Maybe it is enough, particularly because he has been a successful Democrat in an extremely Republican state. I mean, Donald Trump won West Virginia in 2020 by 39 points. So maybe, but uh, I don't see it. I think if you want a new generation of leadership, Joe Manchin doesn't count. Now, maybe he could pull enough people away that Democrats would go, oh, God, we got to figure this out. If he runs. And again, to be clear, he has not declared that he's running for the presidency. But if he did, I just don't see the appeal. I don't see the appeal. Not to to dunk on the guy, but like, "Mm, I don't. I don't see it. I'm going to take a very brief break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you a bit about what's happening in Israel. The situation is getting rather dire, remains dire there. But what has bothered me lately is a report that's come out from a media watchdog group that has actually gotten some people in actual trouble and in actual potential danger doing their job covering the war in Israel on the ground. I understand we have very deep distrust of the media these days, and I understand why, but I think if you're gonna criticize, you can't be worse than the people you're critiquing. And this critique is actually problematic. I will explain what I mean when we come back in three minutes. Podcasting is pleasant, but broadcasting is best. Starting the Nightlight showed me how much I miss live interaction, connecting with you in real time. To me, it's more fun, exciting, and meaningful. That's why the Nightlight is expanding to live streaming. Today's youth have revolutionized broadcasting, streaming themselves playing video games or just being silly. Well, consider me a revolutionary. America needs more spaces to connect about the issues that matter, programs that are smart, kind, and fun. No one needs to wait for permission. Not anymore. I can do it myself, but only if you help out. So follow me on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitch to get updates on my next live streams. I'm experimenting with different times of day, and some will be spontaneous, so keep an eye out for updates. I'm still on Facebook, at JoshuaListening, Now I'm on Twitch at Nightlight Show, and I'm on YouTube at The Nightlight Show. Join me live on any platform to share your questions and thoughts in the chat. Watch on demand anytime, or catch the highlights here on my podcast. Let's take this to the next level and make the nightlight shine brighter than ever. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Would like to continue with a story out of Israel. First of all, the situation in Gaza remains very, very serious. The Israeli Defense Forces are on the ground in Gaza City. One of the latest concerns has to do with attacks that have gotten very close to another hospital, to a hospital in the Gaza area with rocket attacks that are landing nearby, people getting hurt in some of those attacks. You may remember that this war began with an attack by Hamas, including a rocket attack on a hospital in the Israeli city of Ashkelon. So this is definitely affecting civilians more and more, although now we have these humanitarian pauses of about four hours at a time to allow supplies to get in and refugees to get out. It's very early going in that. So it's hard to know how that will work or what impact that will have and so on. But hopefully that will help save some lives in all of this. There is one particular piece of this that I wanted to bring up and I hesitate to comment on the war in Israel because I am not an expert on that. I'm learning along with many of you, but I am an expert in the media. I am a journalist and I know what's going on over there. And I wanted to show you something that has become a bit of a furor in the coverage on the ground. Look, I know part of the reason why you're looking at me right now is because there is honest to God, distrust of the press. And other outlets like Twitch and and Facebook and YouTube and others have been, particularly Twitter, pre-Elon Musk, were able to proliferate because people could get out different points of view. And it gave us a different way to connect to one another. Twitter was really something of a news feed for a lot of us, especially because there were official agencies that would put out information on their blue checkmarked accounts that we in the press could look at and go, okay, this comes from the police department. This comes from the Secretary of Education. This comes from the United Nations. And we could believe it. Now that you can pay for a check mark, the system became, became kind of useless. So thanks, Elon. But there was one aspect of all of this that has kind of gone too far, I think. And I'm not saying you should just believe everything you hear. I think that in a way, our distrust of the media, of the press, could end up being a very good thing. I think it can make us more savvy consumers. I don't really mind that people are like, oh, you're a reporter, you're a journalist. I don't know if I can trust you. Well, good. You just met me. (laughs) Why would you trust somebody you just met? And I think for a lot of young people, that's another way to look at their distrust of the media. They're just meeting us for the first time. Why would you trust someone? who you just met, especially someone who claims to be a figure of authority. I think it is wise for young people to go, I don't trust you. The challenge is for us as journalists to say, I think you mean you don't trust me yet. May I have a chance to prove myself trustworthy? If not, that's up to you. I'll always keep trying to earn and be worthy of your trust, but may I have a chance to just show you what I have and you can ask me questions? That's healthy. Super healthy. And I think if we we don't encourage young people to be skeptical, not cynical, but skeptical, then we're missing out on an opportunity to raise the overall level of citizenship in the country. Does that make sense? I don't want people to feel like their pushback to the media is like yelling at Moses for bringing stone tablets down from Mount Sinai, It ain't that deep. Don't get it twisted. We're all human. We all screw this up sooner or later. I have every journalist has and it hurts every single time. And I freaking hate corrections. But we're human beings. And I think that the distrust opens a door for us to re-engage on a very human level. That doesn't bother me. But this does. There is an organization called HonestReporting.com. They are a media criticism organization that deals specifically with coverage of Israel and anti-Semitism. A few days ago, two days ago, in fact, they dropped this report called Broken Borders, AP and Reuters Pictures of Hamas Atrocities Raise Ethical Questions. The upshot of this, as I see it, and based on having read it, is that some of the reporting from Hamas's attack on October 7th was so close to the firing line and was so deep inside of the Hamas fray that it raised questions about how those photojournalists were able to get there that quickly. They put four names of AP photographers whose names are in the photo credits, so it's not a secret, in their piece Some of these people also freelance for CNN, which is not unusual. If a news organization doesn't have a bureau in that area anymore, as many American news organizations don't have anymore because of Wall Street, then they might work with freelancers on the ground. That's not unusual. This is also an argument for maintaining foreign bureaus, but that is a diatribe for another day. So they go through some of the reports some of the tweets on X where he, where one of the photographers talks about being live from inside the Gaza Strip settlements and on and on. This is a selfie that he posted with someone who turned out to be one of the leaders of Hamas. Don't know how that picture came about, but it is not unusual, again, for journalists who are in war zones to document their presence with people who are combatants because it helps them get in and out. This picture does not actually worry me that much because this means that he can get in and out safely. And if I am a reporter and I'm able to connect with people on the ground who are combatants, get in, get out safely, that allows me to report there and it allows me to be safer, to survive war coverage. The number one cause of death on the job for journalists around the world is assassination. Journalism is extremely dangerous work. There was a news anchor in the Philippines last week who was reading a radio news report and got shot in his studio live on the air. Journalism is dangerous, especially in other parts of the world. Here's the piece of this honest reporting report that bothers me. If you scroll further down, lays out all these bits and pieces, criticizes some of Reuters coverage, which, you know, you can criticize the coverage if you want. Here is the key of this. And I think that this bottom part before the reactions update kind of tells the tale. Here it is. Quote, let's be clear, news agencies may claim that these people were just doing their job. Documenting war crimes, unfortunately, may be part of it, but it's not that simple. It is now obvious that Hamas had planned its October 7th attack on Israel for a very long time. Its scale, its brutal aims, and its massive documentation have been prepared for months, if not years. Everything was taken into account, the deployments, the timing, as well as the use of body cams and mobile phone videos for sharing the atrocities. Here's the key part. Quote, Is it conceivable to assume that quote-unquote journalists just happened to appear early in the morning at the border without prior coordination with the terrorists, or were they part of the plan? Even if they didn't know the exact details of what was going to happen, once it unfolded, did they not realize they were breaching a border? And if they did so, and if so, did they notify the news agencies? Some sort of communication was undoubtedly necessary before, after, or during the attack in order to get the photos published. So what are they saying? They're not actually saying anything. They are accusing journalists of being complicit with Hamas. That is an enormous problem. They are accusing journalists who are working to try to get the story of being complicit with Hamas because they were at the scene of the crime. Okay, the aftermath of this has been extremely intense and pretty swift. A number of news organizations, including Reuters, the AP, CNN, the New York Times, have pushed back on this. A few of them have cut ties with some of the journalists involved, but stood by the reporting. And I wanna be clear, they cut ties, but they stand by the reporting. I think that's an important distinction too. I can see, and I'm not inside these companies, so I can't tell you directly, but I can see how if I was a news manager, it's almost like having an operative whose cover is blown, right? I don't want you to get in more danger because often the people who we call photojournalists in these areas, they are all-purpose producers. They're photographers, they're sound technicians, they're producers, they're bookers, they're fixers, they're drivers, they're translators and interpreters. They do a little bit of everything. And those people, when we fly out, they still live there. So if I have someone who's in Gaza or who's in Ramallah or who's in Sana'a or who is, you know, who is in Rafa, any of these hotspots, who is able to get me and my team in and out safely, I don't want them hurt, right? I don't want them to do some work for us. And then they have to bear the responsibility for the work that they did under extremely difficult circumstances. So I get making the decision to cut ties with them for everyone's safety. Here's the larger issue though. That has also brought condemnation from Israeli politicians. Danny Danone, who's Israel's former ambassador to the UN, and former Defense Defense Minister Benny Gantz condemned any journalists who knew about the attacks. This is from an AP write-up. Any who stood idle while killings took place that day, quote, are no different from terrorists and should be treated as such, unquote. Excuse me? Journalists who witnessed an attack, a terrorist attack, should be treated like terrorists themselves? What? This is the impact of this group's report. That's how fast this moved. If you've never heard of Honest Reporting, this group HonestReporting.com before today, we have something else in common. But think about how fast this has made an impact that an Israeli politician would just fire off, like off with their head at someone who witnessed an atrocity, who documented it for the world. Now, let's, let's Take honest reporting and let's let's go down this rabbit hole. Lord help us, let's go down this rabbit hole. Suppose, just suppose these people did know and they didn't say anything about it. Let me ask you something. If you knew that your neighbor, that all the neighbors on your block were going to attack City Hall, we're gonna try to blow up City Hall tomorrow because they told you, how much would you be worried about your family before you called it into the police who may also be in on it? Who are you gonna tell? Who would you tell? I sometimes think about Tom Brokaw, the former anchor and managing editor of NBC Nightly News. He was at the Brandenburg Gate on the night that the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. How did he know? Was he complicit with the East German government? No, he got a tip. He made some phone calls and flew to Germany on a hunch. He said, this is gonna happen. And then while he was there reporting, happened to be in the right place at the right time when the East German communist government read a statement that basically lifted all the restrictions and the rules. And he rose his hand and said, excuse me, it sounds like people can just come and go as they please. Am I hearing this right? And they said, yes, that's that's what this means. And Tom Brokaw said, could I keep that little piece of paper, please? And the guy said, yeah, here it is. press conference ends, Tom Brokaw goes flying out of the room, calls NBC News in New York, and is like, the gate's open. The gate's open. They're letting people through. And NBC News got the story first. That's why he had that shot standing up on a high perch as the Berlin Wall fell in the distance, as people were screaming and coming through the Brandenburg Gate and singing and painting graffiti on it. That's how he got that story. Does that mean he was part of the East German government? Does that mean he was complicit? was he an american operative who helped bring the berlin wall down? He's a journalist. That's our job. Our job is to understand how the world works. Remember I told you that that is that missile strike from Hamas at the beginning of the war hit a hospital in Ashkelon from the edge of Gaza. It's about 7 not quite 8 miles. That's about as far as I am from the Las Vegas strip. You mean to tell me that if I heard a loud explosion and saw a big plume of smoke Off to my, I guess, north of here, northeast of here, I couldn't leap in my car and go flying up Interstate 15 towards danger, which is what journalists do. We run towards danger instead of away and get there in minutes. Really? See, any good reporter would have made that run. I would have made the run. I would have gone racing to the border to see what happened because that's what we do. It's our job to run toward danger. And just because these clowns don't understand journalism doesn't mean that journalists are criminals. Now these people's lives are in danger because they didn't bother to do the work. Be very wary of people who raise questions that they refuse to answer. That's a dead giveaway that they are trying to manipulate your emotions. Don't be gullible don't fall for that don't listen to it tell them to go curse god and die because i want nothing to do with people who will just set my brain spinning on something to scare me without giving me the information to stop the spiral that's what this is about this is about trying to silence people whose coverage they don't like because they can't do the work they feel powerless in the face of a different perspective on the world, and rather than compete with it, they try to cut the legs out from under it by saying, well, what if you're a terrorist? Be very wary of people whose job is to scare you. The best kind of journalism is not here to scare you. It's here to prepare you. I wanna equip you to live in a confusing world at a confusing time. And if you don't like my perspective on something, that's fine. But give me something else to work with. Don't just raise the question because you don't dig it. That's just a lazy way to try to silence an argument you don't like. Here's the bigger problem. Honest Reporting responded on Instagram to the pushback update. What's happened since we published our expose? Take a look at the way they, they they wrote this because it just kind of gives away that that they don't know what they're doing. Over here. The ethical questions we were raising in our expose were not whether the outlets themselves knew about Hamas's massacre in advance, but rather the lack of vetting and the ilk of freelancers these outlets chose to work with. It is well known that Hamas tightly controls the media within Gaza. So we ask again, what did these people, meaning the reporters, the photojournalists, what did these people know? When did they know it? And why are these outlets deflecting? Wow, you're a bad liar (laughs) you're really bad liars you told on yourselves in the instagram post look at the structure of the post we're not asking whether they knew we're just asking what they knew and when and why what everybody ain't come back look at me look at me everybody's not stupid we're not asking whether they knew We're just asking what they knew, because that's better. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Do you see how this media distrust can be weaponized at a time when we should just be focusing on saving people's lives? The conflict in Israel is complicated enough. People are dying. If your aim is to go after coverage of the war, that's fine. But give me something I can use and don't play on my anger as if I'm stupid enough to go for it. I'm not that dumb. And I do not find it sexy to be gullible. Gullible is not sexy. It's just not. And I think we need to do a better job, especially in the age of Elon, in making gullibility a very unpopular thing to be, a huge crutch to social or political or professional connection. If I can't trust you to think clearly, I can't trust you. If I cannot trust you to think clearly, I cannot trust you, period. Now, I'll back up a step and say this. I think that the media has a lot of work to do in improving the relationship between the press and the public. We have been way too opaque for way too long. I think some news organizations kind of float above the world, and we never see them as human beings. But that's partly why this kind of thing is possible. If you don't consider me as a journalist to be human, you have inherently dehumanized me. You will say and do anything that suits your purpose, because to hell with me. Who who gives a damn? No one's going to worry about me. No one's going to care if something happens to me. That's the implication. I think part of that is fomented by groups like this. But part of it is our responsibility as journalists. We have to be more humble with the way we talk to you. We owe you more respect in the way that we engage with the world, especially when questions are raised. The problem is that if Honest Reporting had just gone to these news organizations and said, hey, we want to start a conversation about this. They might well have been able to have an impact without getting these people in danger. That's my problem. Even if they're correct, right? Let's stipulate for a minute that everything on honestreporting.com's report is correct. They're still going to get people hurt. And isn't the point of all of this to stop people from getting hurt in Gaza? I thought that was the point. This is not about the humanitarian crisis on the ground. This is about power. And this is about control. Let's just take honest reportings, wild accusation, and pretend for a moment that there's any validity to it. Let's think it through out loud. Suppose there's a journalist who knows about plans for starting a war, right? This is an, an insurgency. This is an insurrection. This isn't like nation state to nation state. This is a terrorist insurgency going to attack Israel. Okay. Different places around the world have different standards in terms of what a journalist has to reveal. And in the U.S., there is a huge shield. There's an argument over whether journalists should be shielded from revealing their sources. So that's actually a more complex ethical issue. Do you want me to reveal that the terrorist down the block is planning something when there are ears and eyes everywhere and that could get me killed? How do you think that through? Do you want me to report it at the expense of my own life? I didn't sign up to be part of the intelligence community. And if Israel cannot protect itself from these kind of attacks, how much of the responsibility is on them as opposed to on someone who is not in the Israeli government? Remember, one of the big critiques at the very beginning of this is, how did you miss this? One of the comparisons that was made very early on was to Israel's Former Prime Minister Golda Meir, because 50 years before this attack in 1973, Israel was also attacked in a war whose soldiers included Benjamin Netanyahu. He fought in that war, and one of the complaints then was, "How did your administration not see this coming?" So it's very convenient for people who are in power now in Israel. And again, Benjamin Netanyahu is not on the list of politicians who's responded to this. Just to be clear. But it's very convenient to say, how could you not say anything? When in Israel's own history, there is an example of what happens when there is an intelligence failure. And it was 50 years ago, almost to the day from when Hamas attacked. So where does the blame fall? It's very convenient to put it on some guy in Gaza who nobody knew before the AP put his name in a credit. But that's not his job. Israel has an enormous military apparatus. What happened there? How did they not know? And I know that sounds like answering a question with a question. I guess my answer is I would put the primary responsibility on the government whose job it is to prevent military attacks, not on the journalist whose job it is to document the entire world as they see it. Is the coverage slanted? Is the coverage biased? Is the coverage accurate? Is it fair? Is it honest? Is it complete? Is it concise? Those are all questions of craft that are worth asking and answering. Is it his job to stop terrorists? No. That is not my job. I'm not equipped for that, trained for that. I don't have a secure channel to a defense official. What do you want me to do, call 911? It's not his job. And honest reporting's peace, creates this false implication that it is his responsibility to stop a terror attack. I have a hard time buying that. Maybe y'all see it differently. I, I think there are other questions that that argument then raises that would rapidly go off a cliff once you think them all the way through. I think journalism can be a tremendous help if we do it right. If we find ways to connect with people that are meaningful, that are powerful, that are valuable, we can help. This doesn't help. This actually does harm. And it could get somebody hurt. I, I don't see how that makes the world any better. I don't see how that supports the state of Israel. I don't see how that fights anti-Semitism. I don't see how that helps the Palestinian people in their search for a peaceful life. I don't see how that prevents terrorist organizations from getting a stronger foothold. I don't see how that disadvantages the enemies of democracies around the world. I don't see what good that does. Just kind of reacting to reporting you don't like out of peak. I just think that's foolish. I just think it's foolish. Maybe maybe I'm too old, but I'm too old for that. That's it for now, but be sure to follow the show in your podcast app. You can also subscribe on YouTube, like this episode, and click the notification bell to get a heads up for new episodes. But wherever you listen, please do write a review. I'd love to hear from you on anything we talked about tonight. Email me, joshua at nightlightshow.com. And if you want to see this program impact America for the better, then consider supporting the show as a paid subscriber online at nightlightshow.com. So until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thank you so much for thinking of me and making time for me. And please keep on shining because someone somewhere needs your light right now.